Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall, back for another episode at the Frontier of Theology, Culture, and the Church. I'm thrilled to introduce in this episode our first ever repeat guest as we welcome Amy Bird back to the podcast to talk about her new book on the Song of Songs, which is entitled The Sexual Reformation, Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman. So if you've ever wondered what to do with that unusual Old Testament book, The Song of Songs, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Oklahoma Wesleyan University. You'll hear more about them later in the podcast. And as always, I want to invite you to go to wherever you download this podcast and leave us a nice, honest review. It helps us to get the episodes out there. So without any further ado, Amy Bird and the Sexual Reformation. The sexual revolution is still going strong, and the church is still operating in reactive mode when it comes to sexuality. We still haven't really arrived at the meaningfulness of our sexed bodies. We still haven't gotten beyond power dynamics. We are still mangled up in cultural stereotypes. I'm calling for a small R reformation in the church regarding the way we understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches about our sexuality. Well, hey, Outpost Theology listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall, and those words were from my guest today, Amy Bird, and we are talking about her latest book, The Sexual Reformation, Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman. Welcome, Amy. Hey, it's good to be back. Yeah, this is sort of a, this is a really special episode because you are, I don't know if you know this or not, you are the very first, the very first repeat guest Get out! on Outpost Theology. That is awesome. So, you know, you tell Michael Bird, put that in his pipe and smoke it. I you will. Are. You know, I, I was just interviewing on the two cities and they told me I was their most invited back guest. Really? Been on there four times more than Mike Bird. So that was yeah. another one that so I got to take that, Mike. Yeah. Take that. And it's not just because of that big Aussie time difference either. That's not the <laughs> <Yeah>. only reason. <laughs> yeah, maybe he just wasn't available, right? <laughs> we uh we're gonna do that YouTube. I've heard, I don't really have a YouTube channel, but I've heard that when you reach like a hundred thousand subscribers and you know a million subscribers, they give you like a big plaque or a big trophy that says, you know, the number of so I'm going to mm -hmm. send you, I'll send you, I've got like a big number two from my, you know, my little, my youngest birthday cake, it, it, you know, the little, the number two candle, we'll, we'll get yeah. that in the mail. <laughs> might, it might even have some birthday cake left on it still. There so. we go. Well, okay. Enough silliness from me. Um, <laughs> why Reformation? The title of your new book is The Sexual mm -hmm. Reformation. And that was referenced in the quote that that i read we've heard about the sexual revolution yeah um why did you choose that as the theme you know um i used a strong word um to make people want to buy my book <laughs> no seriously well it's pro partially probably true right but i used a strong word because i think that um the whole history of the church we we actually see this thread of an aristotelian view of sexuality that we just haven't been able to shake off yet. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, I kind of do ask that question, I'm, you know, am I exaggerating here, calling for a reformation in the way the church teaches about sexuality? But, you know, when you survey church history and you see, um, you know, what the church fathers, what, what the Puritans, you know, um, 
what the reformers um, are saying about the nature of woman, it's pretty scary stuff. And, you know, these are people that I love to read and am edified by, you know, we've learned so much theology from. And so I think that makes it even, um, even worse in a sense, right? More dangerous in, in some ways because we just take in everything they're saying. So like, you know, for example, Christostom, he says that um, woman is the less important inferior matter um, that Augustine says she has small intelligence, inferior flesh than by superior reason. Um, mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas calls woman defective and misbegotten. Mm -hmm. um, John Calvin says we are inferior in consequence to the superiority superiority of the male sex. John Mar uh, Knox says that the weak, the sick, and the impotent persons, like, that's women, the foolish. Mm. Um, and then William Gouge, he, he calls men more excellent in dignity. And so we see that, um, you know, this Aristotelian idea of woman as the deformed man, mm -hmm. in a sense, yeah. um, and that she's inferior to men in her, in her body, in her virtue, and in her wisdom. And I know we don't like we hear that today and we'll say, well, pff, we don't think that anymore. We've come a really long way. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, what I was trying to uncover in, in a lot of ways is how uh, we've polished off that a little bit and we've upgraded woman and we say that, okay, yeah, like she's also now, we're going to say she's also made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. um, but then we use language such as roles um, to teach something uh, very similar about woman's inferiority. Um, and we use roles in this kind of way to designate like this, this ontological um, mode that woman is under man. Yeah. Well, I read through those quotes that you mentioned at the beginning of the book. And I, I mean, they are cringeworthy quotes right. from some of the great, you know, great leaders of the church, people who said great things on so many yes. <laughs> other areas of theology, but you read through those quotes about women and, and they are cringeworthy. I, one thing I like about the Reformation and you, you do qualify it a bit. You say small R Reformation, right, right. you know, you're not, uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to have like a, you know, a 30 year war over this. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, but... And I'm not saying that we've got salvation wrong here, you know, <laughs> But the reformers historically were about going back to the to the sources, sort of ad fontes, yeah. and mm -hmm. you are calling us back to uh, the sources of scripture specifically mm -hmm. on this issue. And in particular, if folks are kind of wondering, is this just a book about gender? Is it just a book about you know male and female and leadership? Or it's all, it's really a book about the Song of Songs. Yes. In a many, so in many my, ways. This is how I snuck in the back door. <laughs> yeah. It's not <laughs> in the subtitle necessarily. The <laughs> I, uh, my colleague here reminded me the other day that he was reading a book by Umberto Eco on medieval aesthetics. Okay. And Eco had said that, you know, if you look at post-Reformation, the book of the Bible that had the most sort of written about it mm -hmm. is Romans. Okay. And that's probably not surprising. Makes sense. Yeah. But Echo made the claim that in the Middle Ages, the book of the Bible yes. that had the most written about it by far yes. was the Song of Songs. Song of Songs. And they would go to the song because, you know, the song was looked at then as kind of the, the meta narrative of scripture and concentrate. And so they would go to the song to help them when they were having difficulty. It was a, like a hermeneutical tool to help them interpret other texts of scripture where they had difficulty. Whereas today, <laughs> I mean, pastors rarely even preach on the song um, because they don't really have confidence to. I hear that from 
from a lot of pastors. Like we look at the Song of Songs today as this like hermeneutical challenge of itself. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting how it's, we've done a complete 180 in the way that we view the Song of Songs. So, you know, when you're talking about reformation and resourcing, like retrieving, um, you know, one thing I do try to retrieve is this tradi- traditional classical way of reading the Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember being in college and we had a class on hermeneutics and I, I was joking with the other profs the other day because I actually didn't take the class on hermeneutics. Oh, really? <laughs> so I feel so much freer now as a theologian. <laughs> I just do whatever I want. I just, you know, spin stuff off into the air. But but one of the students who did take the class on hermeneutics, I remember he was one of my buddies and he wrote this massive paper on the Song of Songs. Really? Because he wanted to delve into like, why is this in the Bible? Right. You know, and you go into that. I mean, in the book, like for centuries, the, you know, the, the way it's been read is this sort of elaborate allegory mm-hmm. of uh, in the Jewish tradition, even before mm-hmm. the Christian tradition, it was yes. read allegorically uh, for mm-hmm. Yahweh and his people. And in the Christian tradition, it's been read allegorically as uh, regarding the soul and God or mm-hmm. the church and yep. God. And then it seemed, you know, after the Reformation, there was this shift. I mean, not immediately. I mean, even people, no. even even after the Reformation, there were allegorical readings mm-hmm. that that no, let's read this as a about just a a married couple, essentially, correct? And about yeah. sexual love and within marriage and mm-hmm. and so I take those to be kind of like the two main extremes, maybe like this yeah. elaborate allegory and then this more mm-hmm. literal. There are some other the, like, I don't want to use the, like Mark ones Driscoll. coming now too. <laughs> yeah. That would be like the biggest train wreck of, be, of all, yeah. right? <laughs> so I guess this is a terrible question, but what drew you to the song? And then how did you kind of land on your particular reading of it? Okay. So, um, the song always intrigued me. Um, you know, I have, I, I like poetry, you know, um, so the song did always intrigue me. Um, but it's interesting how I, how I really was drawn to it now. And that is, you know, after going through spiritual abuse, actually in the church, um, I, I ended up turning to the song of songs and that's where I found like, that I was deeply ministered to by the love of Christ. And so in in reading it um, as, you know, in line with tradition, um, not to fall into the allegorism that I do think is very good uh, critique of ancient reading, um, but this, how could you not read the song as an allegory? Um, and, And to see that it's been received that way the whole time that the early church fathers called the song of songs, the holy of holies of scripture. So like if, if you want to find the most, um, the most intimate presence of Christ with his people in his word, go to the song of songs. And it's almost like this, this little peek behind the veil really of what is to come. And, and I think that theologically speaking, you know, when, when we talk about uh, God's love for us, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, with the reform circles that I come from, you know, we love to cross our T's and dot our I's with all these doctrinal statements and confessions and, and we love our creeds and they're all very good. But um, they, there's 
things that can't be taught didactically about love. <laughs> and so that's why we have poetry and allegory and metaphor and imagination even being sparked and curiosity being beckoned um, when we step into the Song of Songs. And going to the song, you know, when I was in that kind of pain, um, th that's where I found Christ's words to me and, and words that I could speak back to him. And that was very meaningful to me at the time. And, um, and so it, it enhanced my prayer life. It, it, I felt the presence of Christ in that. Um, but then also I began to see, at, you know, a lot of the abuse that I was going through in the church was to do with being a woman and writing about women and discipleship. And, um, you know, finding in the song, this, this story that our bodies tell of Christ's spousal love for his bride and to see this typology of man and woman unfold. Um, to me, there was just so many treasures that aren't only in the song. There's um, so many echoes throughout scripture uh, that kind of interplay with the song of songs and the song with the other ones. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I started to see um, the song as a hermeneutical tool and that it really does activate other verses that enhances the meaning of both. And, and it, it told quite a great, beautiful story of the unfolding of man and woman as well, pointing to Christ's spousal love for his bride and even the, the unity of heaven and earth and the new heavens and the new earth. So mm -hmm. to me, well, it's just ex very exciting. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool how, you know, the spirit used it in your own life to bring healing yeah. and to, to speak to you. And I also appreciated that I don't hear you saying that we really have to choose one extreme, right? One extreme right. being like a really over the top allegorizing, because um, mm -hmm. sometimes the church fathers could do a bit of that. Oh yeah, um, not ju not just with the Song of Songs. No. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could talk about you know the parable of the Good Samaritan or any number yeah, of uh -huh. like overly allegorized passages. Uh, nor do we need to read it only through the lens of well, here's basically, you know, just a, a, a married couple experiencing marital union, you know, and yes. that's, that's kind of how I hear you. We don't have to fall into an Right. A, For me, I feel like, um, you know, cause there's some like, you know, after modern textual criticism and all this, you know, this when it really came in to say that, you know, the early church fathers, they were just embarrassed to talk about sexuality and eroticism the way that the song does and so they they covered it up by making it an allegory right mm -hmm. and um and so then it became all about okay well the song of songs you know there's a lot of similarities to ancient egyptian poetry and love mm -hmm. you know love poetry and and so it became about sex and love mm -hmm. and that's it and um to me that is a very like as paul griffith say, says a flat-footed way mm -hmm. of looking at the song to where we have commentaries today that um are widely accepted, you know, popular commentaries where we're hearing that, you know, the Song of Song is is not a theological book. God isn't in it. It has nothing to say to us mm -hmm. about God. And I just think, what in the world? We're talking about the sacred scriptures. How could mm -hmm. we possibly say that there is a book in the canon of scripture that isn't about God? Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that you can't not read it allegorically. Um, yeah. So to me, that you know, putting that vertical dimension in there, um, um, that makes it a sacred book to begin with. Um, and then overflowing from that, there's much to teach us, of course, within mm -hmm. the allegory about our sexuality. 
and love and all these things. So I just think, you know, putting it in its proper place is important. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, can you give some examples? You do this a bit in the book, but of how the New Testament draws upon the song in particular ways, um, how it references it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's a helpful hermeneutical place to start rather than just the church fathers or, you know, how the New Testament itself uh, intertextually sort of draws upon the song. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, uh, John, especially, um, you just see all kinds of echoes in John's writing. And I just call him like a a singer of the song. (laughs) And um, some parts of it just came so alive to me as I was sitting listening to sermons on Sunday morning, like through the Easter season, I was like, oh my goodness, as you are seeing Mary Magdalene coming to the empty tomb, um, she's in the garden, you know, and and you see some of the same language as you do in the Song of Songs where she's turning and turning and turning. Um, And it doesn't really make sense when you read it in the gospel. Like, it's almost like if you were to visualize what, what he's saying, it's like she's twirling around almost or something um, mm-hmm. in an odd way. Um, but then you see that word being used over and over in the Song of Songs. And so that ignites, um, I think that you're getting these like two worlds, you're just kind of getting a picture of, of Christ's resurrection there in the song. Um, and then also uh, the scene with Mary of Bethany uh, anointing Jesus' feet with her hair and the nard there's so many words there that echo um, from the Song of Songs. In Revelation, you have like the very first description of Christ. Um, John Owen uses, um, you know, he talks about, uh, I can't remember the exact verse it is in the Song of Songs, but where she says that her beloved is ruddy and white. And you see that, that same description about Christ in the beginning of Revelation, like, um, all of these pictures are coming together. So she's really saying that my lover is Jesus, you know, who is coming again. And in the Song of Songs, I think you get this, this already and the not yet that you get in some of those scenes where it's being echoed in the New Testament again. And, and I just think that that's really thrilling. Yeah. I think if I recall, you also mentioned Ephesians 5. Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh-huh. and Paul's reference there to... Um, the husband and wife, obviously in Ephesians five, and then he talks about, but I'm, you know, talking about Christ in the church. What was yeah. it in that passage that I'm trying to recall even? Yeah. So I- he's saying, I wish I had my uh, Bible in front of me. He's saying that uh, Christ washed his bride mm. um, with, so that she would be without spot or wrinkle. And then you see in song four in the wasp, when um, Christ or the groom is pra- praising the bride that he's saying that she is um, perfect without spot or wrinkle. Mm-hmm. And so then you see, it's like, oh my goodness, this, this is the great mystery that Paul is talking about here. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it just blows my mind because you know that that is what he's thinking as he's writing that, those words. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice presentation the, of his bride. Yeah. The, 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 the bride and the bridegroom and the bride, if I recall in the song, it's a reference to her being dark her mm-hmm. her dark complexion which in the ancient world typically was not something you know they didn't have tanning she looked out in the sun yeah. yeah yeah she was doing the hard labor out in the sun yeah and yet she's made without spot or blemish yes um, yeah through, mm-hmm. the, through the bridegroom well, that's that's cool and i 
I'll, I'll confess when I, and I read the book quite a long time ago, cause I was honored to offer a, uh, an endorsement of it. Yeah, and you. I went into it a bit skeptical. I'll be honest, Wait, because I was just like, well, <laughs> I love what, Amy's stuff. I love her Johnson stuff. Said. <laughs> it's like, oh no, it's about the song. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how I'm going to tell her that I don't buy it. I just yep, don't yep. buy the allegory. Um, but I, I found myself as you kind of wove through some of these intertextual references, I found myself being more convinced of the idea that we can read it more typologically in certain facets, you know, without yeah. falling off the cliff into <laughs> yes. a sort of excessive allegory. Thank you um, for saying that. Yeah, Drew so, Johnson was telling me the same thing. And here he is, like the head of Hebraic thought, right? And I'm, how crazy am I to send it to him and ask for an endorsement? But, you know, really, I think it was a bit of a test for me. Like, let's see. Yeah. Um, how it how it does over here and I really wanted to hear what he thought about it and he he told me too when he was interviewing me he was like yeah you know I was excited about what you're writing about but then when I saw that you were going to use the song of songs as your your main text I thought oh my gosh this could be a real train wreck and <laughs> <laughs> so he said he was very pleasantly surprised when he read it so well, you said um, it to me and I already said please. I didn't take hermeneutics so it was safe <laughs> but uh <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Apos Theology listeners, you've heard me talk about this before, but this is the time of year where we at Oklahoma Wesleyan University are accepting applications for our fall cohort in the honors program, which I actually have the privilege of leading here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Our honors program allows students to study in small groups in an integrated format with some of our best professors team teaching courses that connect whatever the subject matter is to a Christian worldview. Honor students have the benefit of getting a double major or a minor in letters, our honors program, in the same amount of time and for no additional cost. And so if you would like to come study with me, if you know a gifted young student who you think would be a good fit for our honors program, just go to okwu.edu to find out more. And in the search tab, you can type in letters or Honors. Letters is the designation of the degree. The honors program is what we're talking about. And I would love to have you come study with me. I want to talk about the complementarity of male and female. And you've okay. written on that before. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked for listeners who maybe, you know, didn't listen to the first interview. We talked about Amy's uh, previous book, which was talking about biblical manhood and womanhood. Yes as opposed to the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. <laughs> um, how does the song, or maybe how do you see the complementarity of male and female um, in ways that are distinct from this sort of, what I would call a really um, abusive and, and I would even say unbiblical complementarianism. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you see that playing out in the song or just your own kind of views on that? I know you've gone through this kind of crazy ride of- uh, Right. Uh, oh. Yeah, so in the song, it's fascinating to even just study the, the male and female voice in the song because here we have, you know, it written in such a patriarchal time and what we have is a very androcentric text, you know, the Bible. Um, and then right in the middle of it, we have this, this song where the woman's voice is dominant. It opens it, it closes it, it's immodest, you know, um, and 
And the man is beckoning her voice. And I mean, I really think this is true complementarity here. Like that's a beautiful word. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to demonstrate something beautiful and we get that in the song. Um, and so she has this freedom and belonging and you see this, um, this mirroring of one another's language throughout the song of songs over and over again. She mirrors what he says. He mirrors what she says. You see this reciprocity, you see dynamism, um, you see like the, their words, their words don't just teach us something. They, they do something to us and it's fructifying um, and it draws us in and it, it uh, directs our longings and ignites our imagination. And so I just think like, this is a picture of true complementarity. And, and, and what I teach um, in the book that we're learning too about the meaningfulness of, of man and woman um, we see that the bridegroom is masculine um, and, and that Jesus was a man. Um, and, and what does that show us? And, and I think this is, we see a picture of this in the story of creation too, because like in man, I think, you know, we're, there's this typology here of, of pointing to the federal headship of both the first and the second Adam and, and the work that he's to do. And what we see is he's the first to love the first to give and the first to sacrifice. And then, you know, woman wears that. Um, she, we see a typology of woman um, that she is like pointing to the end of that work. She's pointing to holy realm, Zion and holy people, the, the whole corporate identity, where we're headed, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven from God, as we see revealed in Revelation. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's eschatologically rooted. And, and that frees us um, to something much more beautiful than um, what we have in like the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood teaching, um, which to me, that is rooted more in cultural mores. It's a theology from below and it enslaves us. Um, so I believe the eschatologically rooted sexuality or anthropology, we could say, um, leads us to glory. It leads us to the beautiful picture of um, joining with the father and loving the son and the spirit. Um, it, it shows forth the gift that the father gave the son of a bride and his reception of that gift. And so we see the groom's voice twice beckoning the woman's voice. He says, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your face is lovely and your voice is sweet. Um, and the very last thing he says to her is, again, this beckoning, let me hear your voice. Companions are listening for your voice. And I think that is an evangelical call for us to testify to him. And, you know, she closes out the song calling him um, to the, the mountain of spices that her very body represents, which you see throughout the song. So it's like she closes out with this Maranatha call. And so I just think that that is just something that really lifts us all up and helps us see one another as gift. Um, and, and, and we're looking more at a meaningfulness um, in the design of our sexuality by the stories that our bodies tell. Yeah, no, that's good. I've appreciated it. I'm not even sure if it was in this book or something else that you've written about kind of how Christ demonstrates an empowering headship. 
Right, yes. it's a headship that is constantly mm-hmm. uplifting yes. others. Yes, gives power too. Yes, rather mm-hmm. than having to sort of paranoid in this paranoid fashion, like <laughs> yes. grasp and hang on to power. Yeah, uh, it's power over versus power too, right? And I yeah. think um, so much of the church is under this framework of power over. Yeah. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, one last plug in this episode for the Oklahoma Wesleyan University Graduate and Professional Studies Program, or GPS. If you are interested in a high-quality Christian liberal arts education, but you can't come to our Bartlesville campus to be a traditional student, we have degrees for you that are 100% online. Graduate degrees, like our Doctor of Business Administration and our Doctor of Nursing Practice, undergraduate degrees, like degrees in business, ministry, and leadership, and even certificate programs in things like church planting and Christian ministry. Just go to okwu.edu to find out more and type in GPS. We were joking before I think I hit record about, you know, <laughs> I had a book come out recently and you were very kind to to say nice things about it. I was joking about how nobody's just book. made like big hit jobs about my book, you know, right. like, like they seem to do about <laughs> your books. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of why you have generated such a harsh reaction? Is yeah. it because you're coming out of a particular camp? that, you know, it's not the same tribe that yeah. I'm coming out of. So I'm not going to get hit mm-hmm. jobs written about. I mean, it's not that you're, <laughs> you're not writing incredibly inflammatory things. You would it's, think, it's right? It's sort of bizarre I mean, to me that you, um, have you have, have you learned a bit about that? I believe that it's multifaceted. Um, part of it is that, you know, I was giving some critique within my own circles. Um, so yeah, I was, you know, was in the OPC, which is a very conservative denomination. Although I wrote, you know, completely within the bounds of the confessions of the OPC. Um, but I think, you know, one part of it is like, I don't, I write as a laywoman, And I think a lot of this has revealed um, and, and smoked out what people really think about hearing from a laywoman. Um, I've been trying to write as a disciple, um, you know, do do I need to go to seminary just to be discipled? Do I need to go um, get my PhD to be able to have a voice? Um, and so I think part of it is I don't have that institutional protection mm-hmm. that some may have. Um, and I'm actually trying to use my voice within the church where I, you know, still firmly, you know, as much as I appreciate academia and, you know, continue to w- want to use resources and learn from, um, you know, I'm, I'm, my conviction is that the church is the primary place for discipleship. And so we should be offering that and we should be contributing in those ways. Um, and so I've tried to, and I had opportunity to be a voice, I think that um, can go upstairs and have a conversation and go downstairs and have a conversation and be this kind of bridge, I feel like. Um, however, <laughs> I think that is also another reason why they've come after me is because they can't silence me by saying like, um, you know, I'm going to go after your, your job or your, your husband, you know, he might be a pastor or my husband's not a pastor, you know, mm-hmm. he works in you know, secular vocation. So um, I think that that in some ways frustrates, uh, I don't have a desire to, you know, be on some list for a platform with these, you know, other speakers. Mm-hmm. So I don't, 
I have freedom to, to go outside of the bounds of whatever those rules are. I don't play by those rules. Yeah. So I think that that's, you know, some of the reasons, but I mean, ultimately it really boils down to what our theology is, yeah. uh, you know, about women. Well, I joked with Karen Swallow prior about this too, about, you know, the Wesleyans were open to drafting free agents. And uh, so if you're, <laughs> if you're thinking, I know Beth okay. Moore was a free agent. I think Mike yep. talked about the Anglicans picked her up. Yep, yep. Um, you know, just throwing that out there. We, we, we allow, yep, you know, we allow women to write uh, blog posts and uh, books <laughs> and even, even preach sermons. So I just, uh, just throwing that out there. Okay. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Um. Now I've lost my train of thought completely. But <laughs> Free agent. That is so funny. I have students who I teach in the honors program here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And one of the things we really stress is learning how to write and read and think clearly. Um, mm. And so I've had students who are like, man, I want to write someday. And some of them are female students who are not planning to go into you know, academia per se. Okay. But off the top of my head, what advice do you have for young oh. writers? I mean, you're a writer who basically you started a blog, right? And it's yeah, sort of I just had a book in my head. Caught on fire. Uh, what do you tell young <laughs> writers when when they ask you that question? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, I, I kind of became an accidental writer. Um, I, I didn't start off as somebody who's like, I want to write. Um, you know, I and I'm an education major, <laughs> so I did take creative writing and different writing as, uh, you know, when you have those like alternatives that you can take, you know, just for fun kind of thing, um, which they turned out to be a lot more work than I was expecting. But um, for me, my writing developed out of this loneliness as a thinking woman in the church. And so wanting to, you know, offer um, some tools in that way. And, and I had a book in my head um, from all the reading I was doing and connecting dots that I was doing and, and not having that outlet in my own church to, to have these conversations. Um, so I think it really has to start with a passion about like something that you want to write, so, you know, something that you want that you can't find somewhere else that uh, to, to have a conversation to enter into this, you know, discussion or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think that for me, it, it did. I had to start with a strong passion. And then in doing that, you need to reach out. And I think that is a very scary thing to do. Like um, when I started my blog, it's because I had been writing the book and I knew I was a complete nobody housewife in West Virginia. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Who was going to listen to me? What publisher is going to look at my book? So I started researching, like, what do you need to do? What are publishers looking for? And, and it's like you need some sort of platform in a sense to where you're testing out your writing already and that you have readers who are interacting with it. So um, I didn't even join Facebook until I started my blog because I just wasn't all about social media and all of that. Um, so I started putting myself out there. Very scary thing. Um, and in that, I began meeting people. It, I mean, I still have um, like online relationships with readers from the beginning days, which Mm -hmm. To me, it's just so cool because I feel like we've sharpened one another. Um, it's opened so many doors of just ideas and thought and learning. So that part of writing, I really, really like. But you know, putting yourself out there and going and reading other people and commenting and interacting with them. And I think mm -hmm. really it's a give and take kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so writing is a community in a lot of ways. And I think that's a big part of it, but you yeah. do have to do your research on um, 
what publishers are looking for, what you need to do as far as the overwhelming task of writing a book, you know, you need to set small goals Mm -hmm. to reach the big one and you need to follow through. Yeah. I think, I don't know who said it. I mean, sure. A lot of people have, but the one prerequisite for being a writer is having written (laughs) sitting down and there's a sense of where you can't not, you know, like honestly with everything that's gone on since recovering has released the last two years have been very hard. Mm. And there's definitely on occasion, you know, good occasion. (laughs) My husband and I go to this local brewery usually on Friday nights and get uh, burgers at the local burger joint there. And I'm like, I just think it would be, it's so tempting to just be a beer tender at Smoketown. <laughs> you know, people are happy. Um, it's just regular people, you know. Like, Nobody makes YouTube videos about them peeling potatoes. I know. It's just like, I'm not going to be called a Jezebel the next day, you know, just. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you are an inspiration to a lot of people who see somebody who has had the grit to keep writing and not to be silenced by the angry voices online that are always louder than the numbers that, you know, know, they they just are disproportionately loud online. Yes and no, they are disproportionately loud, but, um, you know- You think they're larger? Well, you know, for example, um, it's like every two weeks another bomb drops, okay? And one of the latest within the last month was, um, Wayne Grudem was advertising his latest revisions, uh, version, revised versions of a systematic theology and his doctrine book. Um, on his social media goes on this quote from the book about how Amy Bird has broken the ninth commandment <laughs> in telling him that his eternal functional subordination of the sun teaching is not in line with Nicene Orthodox theology. Um, and I'm just like, Okay, here's best-selling books, you know, mm-hmm. very powerful man, uh, doesn't name any of the like over 50 scholars who have critiqued and said the same thing, mm-hmm. um, or the people who have debated him at like ETS, you know, about it, or, yeah. or even the patristic scholars who called his writing death. Um, just Amy Bird, just this woman, mm-hmm. um, and it's a moral issue. Yeah. And so he rewrites history in his book <laughs> by saying, oh, it was just this woman. But you got a footnote? Did you get a footnote in the new book? Yeah, recovering. You know, he quotes from recovering. And so I'm just like, this is yeah. so odd. But yeah. it's it's actually like, you know, I have to deal with that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, people who don't know me, who don't know my work and um, appreciate, you know, a lot of the good things that Wayne Grudem has done mm-hmm. um, and read his best-selling books. There it is. Amy mm-hmm. Bird is an immoral person. Yeah. So, you know, in one, you'd like to believe that it's just fringe, you know, but it's widespread. Mm-hmm. Well, I think sometimes I think I heard Steve Holmes, who has been a, a champion of uh, women in, in the church for years at St. Andrews say that mm-hmm. um, sometimes you can tell when someone feels like they're losing an argument because they start yelling louder. And, yes. And I think that there's some truth to that in some of these, what I would, I don't want to smear all complementarians. I'm not a complimentarian, so I don't want to pretend that they're all the same, but in what I no, would call yeah. the kind of the sort of mangelical crowd, uh, the, <laughs> the sort of angry complimentarian crowd, that there is a sense, I think, 
that they feel like they're losing the argument, at least in terms of the church as a whole. And so that leads yeah. to some angry outbursts um, mm-hmm. at folks like you. So I'm sorry that you've had to deal with that, but <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful that you've kept writing. And Thank you. Uh, what can you say? I know we're about out of time, but what's in the works? Do you have a new project that's uh, in the works? Yeah, or? I mean, I'm, I'm just not done with the Song of Songs. Um, what I've been working on now is um, a series of meditations on the song, like going through it then from beginning to end. And, and what I'm kind of aiming for there is to show all the things that, you know, all the treasures in the song. But I think it's, I'm thinking about people who want to go deeper than the devotionals offer for us today. Um, but also, you know, don't want the starchiness that come in a lot of commentary, you know, academic commentaries. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm trying to bring back, you know, meditations. I think that that would be a, a good way to, to go through the song of songs. Teresa of Avila did it um, in the middle of the middle ages. Um, so I feel like, we need more women writing on the song, I think. And um, I'm not done with it. So that's what I've been working on. Cool. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, I can't wait to read it. Where can people follow you if they want to follow you online or your work? Sure. So my blog is amybird.com. Um, spelled a little different. A-I-M-E-E-B-Y-R-D. And then um, on Twitter, I'm at amybirdpyw for Peel Yellow Wallpaper. Cool. That's right. Peel that yellow wallpaper. And, <laughs> and you do other things. I know you, you and Michael Bird have done some YouTube stuff. Yeah, we're some... doing uh, birds of a feather every now and then just kind of sporadically. We'll get together and do YouTube. He's doing a lot of YouTube videos. Yes. So yeah, yeah you look up his YouTube channel and you can see, but we have our own little thing going on there. Too. He just it's used that fun. lockdown over there to just get really good at YouTube. He really did. And they were really in a lockdown, so it was pretty serious. I'm being silly about Michael Burr, but I had a I had a pastor friend come to me. I won't out this pastor friend, but he was a complimentarian, uh, came from that background, and he somehow got a hold of Mike's. I can't even remember the title now. Bourgeois. Oh yeah, babes, bossy, bossy house, bossy wives, and bobby haircuts. <laughs> yeah, something like. I'm that. a little bit surprised Ondervan let him get away with that title, but uh, it's a it's a title of an, another book. Okay. Yeah, he okay. was playing off of it. And it's just a tiny little book, but it, he mm-hmm. said this pastor friend, I said, it was amazing. And it like totally changed my perspective. Really? Wow. It like was really transformative. So, yeah. so when you see, when you see Mike again on birds of a feather, you tell him that that book uh, made a difference. Got one converted person. Woo-hoo! That's right. One person <laughs> and also one appearance on outpost theology, which just is one, one less, <laughs> less than Amy Bird. So Amy, thanks Correct. for joining us today. Yes. Thanks for having me back on. It's always good to talk with you, Josh. Yeah, take care. <laughs>